From the WGLT Newsroom, good morning. I'm Jack Palaznik. A former Bloomington police officer will not face criminal charges related to his release of police reports to two suspects in a drug case. That's according to a special prosecutor asked to review the case. Bloomington Police Sergeant Ty Carlton was fired in January after an internal investigation found text messages exchanged between the veteran officer and two nurses. The nurses were being investigated for stealing fentanyl from a doctor's office where Carlton's wife, Wendy, worked. Charges have not been filed in that case. Special Prosecutor Tom Brown with the Illinois State's Attorney's Appellate Prosecutor says his office found insufficient evidence to prosecute Carlton. Carlton was a 21-year veteran of the Bloomington Police Department. When the normal public library closes next month for its renovation and asbestos removal project, library staff will have to change the focus of their jobs for about nine months. Library Director John Fisher says they've been saving up internal projects to do during the closure and will continue the weeding and curation of the book collection. We don't anticipate any layoffs of part-time staff. We don't anticipate any need to cut staff for any reason. That said, as staff leave the library for their own reasons, it's possible that we don't replace them right away. Fisher also says staff will have extra work to do for off-site programs supporting a reading, Wi-Fi, and internet access site elsewhere in Uptown, and serving book pickup services for patrons. The project, approved by the board, will cost more than $5 million. And Heartland Community College is preparing to use new grant money for virtual reality training. Heartland's Director of Online Learning, Kate Harold-Brown, says the $73,000 grant is going toward a dedicated virtual reality lab in Normal, as well as mobile VR units. They'll be equipped with career exploration software that can go to its Lincoln and Pontiac campuses. I also think it's a great opportunity for people to learn more about what it's like to have a career in a high impact and uh, high growth uh, career field that they might not have thought of otherwise. Harold Brown says the tech will allow students to try out certain careers that Heartland can offer training for. I'm Jack Palesnik. Next time on 1A, what can the results of the Michigan primary tell us about the path ahead for both Democrats and Republicans? Join us for the latest from the Great Lakes State. I'm Jen White, host of 1A. Listen at 9 a.m. on WGLT, Bloomington Normals Public Radio. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow, today. More at iu.edu. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. The Supreme Court hears another gun case today, and this time it is not about the Second Amendment right to bear arms. It is about a federal regulation that bans devices that speed the firing mechanisms on semi-automatic guns. And here's where I want to let you know that this report contains the sound of gunfire. Here is NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. The gun regulation in today's case wasn't created by the Biden administration. It was created by President Trump after a single gunman in Las Vegas using multiple guns modified by so-called bump stock devices killed 60 people and wounded 400 more, all in the space of 11 minutes. Marissa Murano and her sister Gina were there. And I will never forget the sound of the machine gun firing into the crowd that night. 
as Gina and I ran for our lives. Actually, it wasn't an illegal machine gun. The shooter was armed with multiple semi-automatic weapons modified with bump stocks to generate rapid fire. And the carnage was so horrific that President Trump almost immediately ordered the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms to ban the sale and possession of these devices that the ATF now says convert otherwise legal semi-automatic guns into illegal machine guns. Machine guns have been banned in the U.S. since 1934, but those challenging the rule today point out that the ATF hasn't always equated bump stocks with machine guns. They argue that the agency has wrongly reinterpreted the statute banning machine guns to include bump stocks, and that it doesn't have the authority to do that under existing law. At the heart of the dispute is a highly technical question about how bump stocks work in practice. In its brief for the ATF, the government notes that under the National Firearms Act, Congress has banned machine guns because they eliminate the manual movements that a shooter would otherwise have to make in order to fire continuously. And while a machine gun can fire hundreds of rounds per minute with just one pull of the trigger, semi-automatic weapons can't do that at least not without modifications like the bump stock. Mark Chenoweth is president and CEO of the new Civil Liberties Alliance, the conservative group that's challenging the bump stock regulation. Whether or not there's a bump stock attached to that semi-automatic weapon, a bump stock does not change the way that the trigger operates. So the trigger still has to be pulled for each time. The trigger moves, the trigger resets between each shot. Not so, says the government. A standard semi-automatic rifle fires only one shot each time the shooter pulls the trigger, but a bump stock converts the gun into a weapon that would allow a shooter with a single pull of the trigger to fire at rates of up to 800 bullets per minute. According to the government, the bump stock at issue in this case, for instance, maintains a continuous firing cycle as long as the shooter keeps his trigger finger stationary on the finger rest. Each side focuses on its strengths. The government stresses the lethality of semi-automatic weapons when they're modified by bump stocks. And it notes that when Congress amended the National Firearms Act, it added that machine gun parts themselves count as machine guns. The challengers focus on earlier regulations that did not ban bump stocks, and they see the bump stock ban as another example of an administrative agency enacting a new regulation that criminalizes conduct without explicit congressional authorization. It's an argument that plays to the conservative Supreme Court's increasing inclination to roll back agency powers. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. More than 42,000 public sector workers in Florida have lost their union representation. That's because of a new law that Republican Governor Ron DeSantis signed. This law makes it harder for unions that represent state and local employees to stay in business. It bans the union from having union dues deducted from paychecks. And then if some workers fail to pay, the union is decertified. Reporter Danny Rivero first exposed this on our member station WLRN in Miami. Danny, good morning. Hey, Steve. Who are these 42,000 people? That's a large percentage of Florida state workers, as I understand. It is. This is people like janitors, groundskeepers, park employees in the state, accountants, just office clerks. They have lost their unions. It's a lot of people. 
This law does exempt unions for police, firefighters, and correctional officers from these new requirements, but it does touch many, many public sector workers in Florida that simply haven't been able to hit the new dues-paying member requirements under the law, which is that six in 10 workers need to pay their dues or else the union dies. Hmm. How does this approach by Governor DeSantis's administration and the legislature match up with the laws that existed in Florida before? Right. So Florida's a little odd with labor law. It's one of only six states in the union to have collective bargaining explicitly written into the state constitution. Hmm. But it's also at the same time a right to work state, which means no one can be forced to pay union dues. So the fine line that state Republicans are trying to walk here is to impose new regulations and rules around public sector unions while maintaining that they're not restricting the right to unionize. So I talked with Republican Representative Dean Black, who sponsored the bill in the Florida House, and this is how he described it to me. The law doesn't decertify them. The workers may choose that through an elective process. And those are the rights that are guaranteed to them under the Florida Constitution. Okay, so are some unions then being decertified? They are. Some unions are out of business and some are just throwing in the towel. I talked to Lanny Mathis Jr., for example, he's a business manager of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers that's represented over 400 workers in the city of Ocala for more than a decade. And he told me, essentially, that union is done. It's finished. I'm very sad. I think that there's no great buy-in to reorganize, and I'm, I'm just afraid there's nothing we can do. So unions have filed challenges to the law in the courts, and we'll have to see how they play out. But in the meantime, we're going to see a lot more people lose labor unions in Florida, from port workers in Fort Lauderdale to lifeguards at public beaches. They stand to lose their unions if they don't hit these new requirements. Well, is this going to kill all public sector unions in Florida? No. I mean, some unions have really stepped up to the shock to the system of this new law, as one person put it to me, like the teachers union in Manatee County near the Tampa Bay area. Pat Barber is the president of the Manatee Education Association, and she told me they've gained a lot of people paying dues ever since this law passed. But at the same time, she would not say thank you to state Republicans for passing it. I do not feel that having a guillotine over the union's head is an incentive to be stronger and more organized. So that union has had a contract for 50 years, and this was the first time it was even threatened with the hint of being decertified by the state. Daniel Rivero with WLRN in Miami. Thanks for the reporting. Thanks for having me, Steve. This is NPR News. Welcome to cooler temperatures today also the end of February and the halfway point of the week. This is 89.1 WGLT. Since we're rattling off lists, a boba tea shop, a burger joint, a soul food restaurant. These have all been food stops for President Biden. And we'll have more on what that says about his campaign in eight minutes. Support for the leadoff on WGLT and WGLT.org comes from the Central Illinois Regional Airport in Bloomington, where Allegiant flies nonstop to Tampa. St. Pete, Florida beaches are just one flight away. Close, convenient, CIRA. More at CIRA.com. Governor Pritzker calls Heartland Community College a model for its EV worker training program. 
That's one of the things you need to know to start your day for Wednesday, February 28th. I'm Ryan Denham, and this is WGLT's The Lead Off. Now let's lead off with Governor J.B. Pritzker helping to cut the ribbon on a new $17 million manufacturing training facility, including an electric vehicle lab at Heartland Community College in Normal. WGLT's Melissa Ellen has a story. The State Farm Electric Vehicle Lab is just one part of a new advanced manufacturing center. The 45,000-square-foot space will serve students in Heartland's EV program, plus those learning robotics, HVAC, welding, and digital media. Pritzker toured the facility yesterday. You are a model for the rest of the state. Heartland was the first community college in Illinois to launch an EV training program, sparked in part by Rivian's growth into McLean County's second largest employer. Heartland President Keith Corneal says his teachers aren't keeping their curriculum a secret. And we're sharing it with other community colleges across the state in order to move the state forward as a leader in electric vehicle and energy storage. Heartland offers an associate degree in EV technology, plus several EV-related certificates. Heartland Board Chair Becky Ropp says the need for specialized skills has become vital to the manufacturing workforce. Not only do we have the training for these in-demand careers, but Heartland also remains the most affordable option for students seeking a two-year degree. It's the second major new facility to open at Heartland in this past month following the $23 million agriculture complex. For the leadoff, I'm Melissa Allen. Here's some other stories we're following in the WGLT newsroom. Senator Tammy Duckworth from Illinois is demanding a vote on her bill to federally protect access to in vitro fertilization and other fertility treatments following the Alabama Supreme Court's ruling restricting IVF. Authorities say they've arrested a 15-year-old boy in connection with a shooting overnight February 8th in Bloomington. A 17-year-old was shot in the leg in that incident on West Market Street. And former Bloomington Police Sergeant Ty Carlton will not face criminal charges related to his release of police reports to two suspects in a drug case. That's according to a special prosecutor asked to review the case. You can find more on these stories at WGLT.org. The Normal Public Library Board has accepted a $5.1 million bid to remove asbestos from the library in Uptown and do other renovations. There will also be some excavation and foundation work to address drainage issues and cracking. In this interview with WGLT's Charlie Schlenker, Library Director John Fisher says they could close as early as mid to late March for about nine months. During the renovation and abatement, Fisher says the library will continue to offer services. That's going to be tricky for us, and we'll we'll really partner with the community on that. We're looking at alternate spaces that are in Uptown, hopefully some spaces that are adjacent to us. Difficult to say uh, today, since I don't have any of those things concrete. Within walking distance of the library, all Uptown locations, it's still an unknown for me when possession of the building will take place for construction. So once I know that, staff, trustees, and I can work together to really lay down that plan and then start communicating to the community, where can you reach us? Now, some things we already know. We've been planning alternate locations for programs for quite a while, just as a backup, just in case. So sort of like we did for the pandemic, we were in the public parks. We were in uh, Town of Normal buildings at the Community Activity Center. We continue to partner with many of our partners partnering organizations, ISU included, the Illinois Arts Station, 
the Bloomington Public Library, uh, various organizations that will support us. And it's interesting to note, you know, when Bloomington started their renovation about two years ago, we were a partner for them. And in fact, we held uh, a Spanish-speaking book club in our facility for them. So I can see partnerships like that increasing again uh, over the next year. Where are you going to put the books in the yeah. meanwhile? Yeah. So that's going to be tricky for staff too. We're going to be shuffling a little bit. So we will empty out the 70s building so that it can be gutted and abated. Once it's renovated, we can start to move over uh, to that facility and empty out, to some degree, the 90s building so they can put in new carpeting and wall coverings and lighting. So most of it won't go off-site. That's the plan. We do have a facility in mind where, uh, and, and I believe an agreement set so that we can store some books should we need to. We will be boxing up a portion, but a very small portion. Our collection is somewhere around 190,000 items. I would estimate close to 10, 15% of that we may box. What kind of in-person services adjacent, as you said, to the existing structure would be possible? You mentioned the the programs, but but what other services? Right. The adjacent services we hope to offer are those most critical. Uh, we see community members needing to have access to Wi-Fi, needing to have access to a computer, online applications, communication, uh, social media, email, and we want to continue to offer those services. I believe it will be limited, but if we can maintain those services throughout this entire process, I think we're all the better. And then, of course, book pickup. We'll be able to gather materials for any community member that's looking for a hold. We'll still have our interlibrary loan in play, so we should have delivery Monday through Friday, just as we do. And as those materials come in, we'll notify the community when and where they can pick those items up. We'll do curbside, just as we do today. We'll do browser packs, just as we do today, and perhaps that will increase as it did uh, in 2020. So we're really excited to offer those services in, in, in different ways. Oh, I didn't even mention printing services, faxing services, scanning services. All of those services we hope to continue to offer in a very smaller adjacent location. And we, we really hope to have a spot where we can have the daily newspaper and uh, the, the magazines or, or, or a small portion of the magazines that we carry for folks who want to come in and just do a little reading. That's Normal Public Library Director John Fisher talking with WGLT's Charlie Schlenker. You can read or listen to more of their conversation at WGLT.org. Before we let you go, there's a candlelight vigil tonight at 5 at Heartland Community College for Nex Benedict, the non-binary student from Oklahoma who died a day after an altercation in the girls' bathroom at their school. That's followed by a 6 o'clock LGBTQ plus town hall meeting hosted by the Prairie Pride Coalition, also at Heartland. And that's it for today. I'm Ryan Denham. Thanks to our producer, Rosalie Trubeck. You can subscribe to The Leadoff on the NPR app or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Hear My Story continues with local patient Paul Brandt. Honestly, I appreciate working with BNA. I would just say that I appreciate all the tough times with me, patience uh, and, and persistence with me. Paul's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food, from employee meal plans to on-site staffing. With corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. 
From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. I had a check, but I'm pretty sure it's Wednesday. And this is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Both President Biden and the former President Donald Trump visit Texas to head to the southern border with Mexico tomorrow. Biden goes to Brownsville. Trump heads for Eagle Pass and Shelby Park. Now, that's ground zero in the fight between Governor Greg Abbott and the Biden administration. In a challenge to federal authority, Abbott used an emergency order to take control of the city park and ban the U.S. Border Patrol from operating there and And as Texas Public Radio's David Martin Davies explains, the park's name is now part of the conflict. The gate to Eagle Pass's Shelby Park is now secure by members of the Texas National Guard in an armored Humvee. Also camped out there is 68-year-old Dan Chandler, who is sitting on the folded-down seat of his walker. What I'm actually doing here is evangelizing. Chandler sports a long gray beard and a red Trump cap, Attached to his walker are posters railing against transgender people, abortion, and one denying climate change. He also holds a Confederate battle flag, a flag, he points out, with a direct connection to Shelby Park. General Joe Shelby, at the end, was here in Texas. He actually wouldn't surrender. Major General Joseph Orville Shelby was a decorated Confederate cavalry officer and a fierce defender of slavery. But when the South lost its war to keep slavery, Shelby and his troops refused to surrender to Union forces. Instead, he and about a thousand of his followers fled into Mexico. And Chandler says, legend has it, Shelby even refused to give up the flag. Shelby came here with his Confederates. They crossed the Rio Grande. They even took the Confederate battle flag, wrapped it around a rock and sunk it in the Rio Grande. From the bloody battlefields of the war between the states. The story earned Shelby the moniker The Undefeated, which was also the name of the 1969 movie very loosely based on his story, starring John Wayne and Rock Hudson. Why did you come clear out here to continue a war that ended months ago in Virginia? Because I'm a stubborn man. Does that satisfy you? The story of General Shelby was regularly celebrated in Eagle Pass. There were reenactments. But now local activists want to change the name of Shelby Park. It should not be named after coward and traitor. Juanita Martinez, the Democratic Party chair here, says Governor Abbott has basically stolen the city park for his anti-migrant Operation Lone Star. We may not get into the park, but maybe, maybe we can change the name. We should name the park after a union general. That's Eagle Pass resident Jesse Fuentes. He says changing the park's name could send a powerful message. My favorite general that comes to mind from the Union side, of course, is Ulysses Grant. So I would say name the park. I'm a Grant Park. I'm a Grant Park would mean immigrant park. (laughs) Fuentes admits that name could be too much to ask, but he and others are workshopping other names like Peace Park or People's Park. Back at Shelby Park's gate, Dan Chandler, a Trump supporter, says, leave the name alone. It's history, he says, and it's repeating itself. It's 1861 right now. If you're on that side of Governor Abbott, like 25 states in Georgia and Florida and Alaska and the Russians, we're all Confederates. 
He and others believe it's no coincidence Abbott is challenging the power of the federal government at the same place some call the grave of the Confederacy. For NPR News, I'm David Martin Davies in Eagle Pass, Texas. Apparently you say a lot with what you choose to eat, especially in public. On the campaign trail, where the president is eating and drinking says something about him and the voters he's courting. Here's NPR White House correspondent Deepa Shivram. Hey, man, how are you? When President Biden was in Los Angeles last week for an event on student loan debt, he made a quick detour. At a Mexican cafe, he surprised diners and took selfies before he ordered a breakfast burrito to go. There's been mounting criticism lately about things from the president's age to his policies. As Biden has been trying to get out of Washington and into swing states, these kinds of stops have become part of Biden's routine. In New York City this week, he ordered mint chip ice cream with late night host Seth Meyers. Earlier this month, he tried boba tea in Las Vegas's Chinatown. And outside Raleigh, he stopped for burgers and a milkshake at the Southern fast food chain Cookout. But when you're the president, a meal isn't ever just a meal. Biden's choices in where to stop and what to order are very deliberate. Food is more than simply nutrition. It is a series of symbols. That's Alex Perdome. He wrote a book called Dinner with the President. That's all about how politics intersects with food. Food is relatable because we all have to eat. If you see a candidate eating the kind of food you like, it gives you a level of comfort. Take, for example, Biden trying boba tea. It's a Taiwanese drink with tapioca pearls inside, popular with Asian Americans and younger people. And it also sends a message to voters who think he's too old for the job, says Hunter Lewis, the editor-in-chief of Food and Wine. Age is the question right now. And so I think going to a cookout, going to a boba tea shop, those are smart moves. I mean, he's projecting that he connects with a younger audience and is in the know. These stops on the trail are a stark contrast to former President Donald Trump, the likely Republican candidate in this election. He prefers big rallies, not these small settings. They're also a contrast to Biden's official events and get him out from behind the podium and engaging in retail politics. Jim Messina, who ran President Obama's 2012 campaign, says it's a more natural place for Biden to be. Joe Biden feeds off the crowd. He's a little like Bill Clinton. He's better in that setting. He likes it. It is a smaller crowd when Biden makes these stops, but his team makes sure to capture the moments to share online through social media. One of those videos features Juan Vargas. He runs Nowhere Coffee with his wife outside Allentown, Pennsylvania. When Biden came to visit last month, he ordered a smoothie and then sat down with the Vargases for 40 minutes and talked about everything from oil prices to the cost of drugs. It was a planned conversation, but Vargas said it meant a lot. I didn't realize it's really real to him when he's saying this stuff on the TV. You know, he does actually, he looks at you and you're like, you can feel it. The campaign is hoping Biden's food stops on the trail help him break through and connect with people, even if they're not interested in politics. It's a strategy that shows they're reaching to bring in more voters in an election that is likely to be decided by a small margin. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. Now I'm hungry. Me too. I want some ice cream. Yeah, come on. I want some. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Yay for the eventual sunshine, which pairs so well with highs in the 30s. 
Thank you for listening to 89.1 WGLT. I'm Ariel Jones. Highway 309 Live returns March 20th for the third show in our series. This event is celebrating Women's History Month with Nashville's Chris Matthews and Peoria's Sarah Ann the Underground. Join us March 20th for Highway 309 Live presented by SEFQ at the Normal Theater. More details at WGLT.org. It's 7 o'clock. Here's what's going on around Bloomington Normal. Easter Seals Central Illinois' Midnight Masquerade Ball is March 2nd at ISU's Bone Student Center. The evening supports children with developmental delays, disabilities, and special needs. Visit the Easter Seals of Central Illinois website for more info. Submit your on-air community announcement at WGLT.org. From the campus of Illinois State University, this is 89.1 WGLT Normal. Part of the NPR Network. Good morning. Leading Palestinian officials resigned, hoping to clear space for a unity government. How are they trying to take charge of bombed-out Gaza, and what are their odds of success? It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Nurses argue hospital understaffing is putting lives at risk. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. In this hour, the story of a widower who's fighting for medical staffing laws that he says could have saved his wife. And it's no longer where's the beef, but what's the price again? Fast food chain Wendy's experiments with surge pricing. And speaking of pricing, why have home and auto insurance costs shot up of late? It is Wednesday, February 28th. NBA superstar Luka Doncic is 25 years old today. And the news is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden and former President Donald Trump won their respective primaries yesterday in Michigan. Rick Pluta of Michigan Public Radio has more on Biden's victory. The Michigan primary fell one week before the Super Tuesday round of primaries and caucuses. In Michigan, groups urged Democrats to vote for uncommitted on the ballot instead of Biden. That was to protest his handling of Israel's invasion of Gaza. Michigan has a large block of Middle Eastern voters and many are upset with the president. Michigan Democratic Party Chair Lavora Barnes says she understands that people are anguished by what's happening in Gaza. And I, I think that as we move forward, we will listen more, we will hear more from our friends and neighbors, and we'll obviously hear more and see more from Joe Biden. Barnes says Democrats will work hard to win the battleground state in November. For NPR News, I'm Rick Pluta in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Donald Trump easily carried the majority of votes in the Michigan Republican primary. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley came in second. Haley has vowed to stay in the race through early next week. The primaries in Super Tuesday states will award over a third of the total presidential delegates. The National Weather Service is warning that conditions are ripe for wildfires in the Southern Plains. The focus right now is on out-of-control blazes in the Texas panhandle. NPR's Giles Snyder tells us a nuclear weapons facility was temporarily forced to shut down. The shutdown at the Pantex plant just northeast of Amarillo came after Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued a disaster declaration for 60 Texas counties. Pantex is the country's main assembly and disassembly site for atomic bombs. Officials there say flames are not threatening the plant. The wildfires in the Texas panhandle have forced evacuations in multiple towns and cities. NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. New research has mapped support across all 50 states for Christian nationalism. 
As NPR's Lisa Hagen reports, it's a set of religious beliefs that used to belong to the fringes of American Christianity. In five states, North Dakota, Mississippi, Alabama, West Virginia, and Louisiana, half or close to half the adult residents believe Christians should dominate all areas of American society. That's according to a new survey about the influence of Christian nationalism conducted by the nonpartisan Public Religion Research Institute. President and founder Robert P. Jones says in most parts of the country, these ideas are a minority worldview. But they're about a third of the Republican Party. So they have this outsized megaphone. Christian nationalism is strongly linked to support for Donald Trump. The movement's ties to power also include U.S. Speaker of the House Mike Johnson and Tom Parker, the Alabama chief justice who recently ruled frozen embryos have the same legal protections as people. Lisa Hagen, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News from Washington.